How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G20 Ventures, people first. Hey guys, I hope you're back from a fantastic and restful July 4th uh, weekend, extended break there. Uh, I spent some time with my friend uh, Jeff Glass today. Uh, Jeff, uh, as you may know, is the CEO and founder, co-founder of HomeTap, uh, which was actually my first deal as a VC. I'm really excited about it. Uh, Jeff and I have known each other for a really long time. Uh, we worked together in a business called M-Cube, uh, which he was the CEO of and had a nice outcome there. Uh, Jeff's really a remarkable guy, uh, grew up in Brooklyn, very down-to-earth guy, uh, one of the most effective sellers that I've ever known, a great CEO because of his ability to assemble and lead great teams that scale. I really enjoyed this conversation with Jeff, which covers uh, the story of his career and a little bit of advice on, on what he's learned over the years about how to make companies successful. Uh, we'll also talk about HomeTap and what caused him to uh, leave what he was doing, which was dabbling in a bunch of different things as both an investor and operator to work full time, kind of get back in the arena uh, as a as a CEO co-founder. Um, very excited about what he's up to and um, uh, glad to share our conversation. So uh, here now is my conversation with HomeTap co-founder and CEO, uh, Jeff Glass. All right. Well, thanks for coming in, Jeff. Good to be here, Michael. I know you got a lot going on, and um, I appreciate you taking the time to share your story and and help people understand, you know, how you got here. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's a crazy journey being an entrepreneur. It is. Yeah. It is. Um, so so let's go back to the beginning of that journey. Uh, tell me a little bit about where you grew up and um, and uh, your early life in, uh, in in the in the glass household. Sure. Well, I, I suppose that. Uh, entrepreneurial behavior was a survival mechanism for me uh, growing up. I, uh, I grew up in inner city Brooklyn, New York, and um, definitely found that the way you survive is either by being a fast runner or a fast talker, and <laughs> I'm not that fast a runner. <laughs> now, Brooklyn was very different than uh, the Brooklyn people may be familiar with. That uh, is true, and un unfortunately for me, I, I take people back now to uh, some of the spots where some of the rougher moments in my life occurred and they look at me like I'm uh, they get a triple macchiato there now. exactly yeah exactly. oh is it this million dollar mansion <laughs> that you got mugged in front of Jeff <laughs> like no that one wasn't there at the time right. yeah it was tough it was you know I had my bike stolen which normally isn't that bad in my case I was still on the bike at the time which <laughs> made it worse but yeah I've got plenty of those stories um and what was your sort of sibling configuration so I have a younger sister. We grew up in a two-bedroom rent-controlled apartment. So I had the pleasure of sharing a room with Randy my entire life. Sounds well, actually, cozy. not the first six years. We're six years apart. The first six years I spent living with my dying grandmother. Right. Yeah. So I had that going for me as well. And uh, did you go to public school? I did. I went to uh, PS217, which mm. so poor they couldn't even afford a proper name. <laughs> And then I went to Dittmer's Junior High School and Midwood High School, all, all of Brooklyn's finest. Where'd you go to college? Went to Amherst College, which is where I learned to speak English. I uh, gave up my Brooklynese and, uh, and learned 
learned a little English. Was that a big uh, deal for your family? Did you feel the burden of expectation as you uh, went to the, you know, the tree-studded countryside there? It was a big deal. Uh, you know, my, so my dad was a high school dropout. My dad did not get past 10th grade. Uh, my mom did go to college. She went to a small college in New Jersey. Uh, but no, it was it was a big deal, and uh, and you know Amherst was a great fit for me. You know, I went to a very big public high school, and to get out in the country and be in a small school and not have to lock your doors and really can focus on learning and education and building those relationships. It was very transformative. For me. I mean, I, I credit Amherst really for just changing the way I think about the world and really opening up my mind to being little bit more creative and understanding there's broad horizons and things you can do and thinking about things from a interdisciplinary approach and uh, it was it was really a great experience I think um, I can't can't take the credit for it I sort of stumbled into Amherst I they they gave an info session in my high school and I guess I I don't know I guess I wasn't getting bugged at the time and so I uh, no actually my high school was pretty good uh, my, my high school was a good place um, but I, I went to this session and I just said, wow, this seems like a really amazing school. I'd never heard of it. I'd never heard of these small New Englandy NESCAC schools. And, um, and so I applied, I went up and you know, got in, went up, visited and just really felt comfortable and, and completely changed my life. Yeah. What did you study there? I was a double major. I was an economics poli-sci double major. Although, interestingly, I started off the first year and a half, I thought it would be pre-med. So, um, you know, the high school I went to had a, um, a very rich science program. It was called, I was in the Medical Science Institute. And so I studied a lot of math and science and, uh, and then thought I would go become a doctor. And then uh, organic chemistry uh, really changed my mind. Yeah. Yeah, a sort of cultural predisposition to be the doctor or a lawyer, I guess. You know, one thing, I do have a cultural disposition <laughs> to grad school, I suppose. Um, but my, uh, the thing that Amherst really has made a tactical mistake is that all of the science labs at the time are overlooking the fields. And so you're in the lab, you know, with your goggles on and looking at test tubes and your friends are out there throwing frisbees and you say, boy, I'm not sure if, uh, I'm not sure if med school is the right path for me. <laughs> What did you, what did you um, want to do when you left there? I mean, you didn't want to be a political scientist, I, I assume, but what, what, did you, what was your aspiration leaving college? Do you remember? Well, actually, it's funny you say that. So I was an entrepreneur. I mean, I, I, I started selling stuff when I was in high school. You know, I, I really learned how to sell selling office furniture when I was a senior in high school and after my freshman year in college. I started a, a small company when I was in college. So I was, I was kind of by birth naturally entrepreneurial. Uh, but in college, the reason why I was a poli-sci major is I thought I wanted to go into public service. I really, I th if you would have asked me at the time what I wanted to do, I wanted to do maybe be a public defender or a district attorney or something where you, you know, were really um, you know, working uh, on the, the law and order side of the world. You know, having that experience of, of selling stuff, um, you know, another thing we have in common is I think it's had a real effect on the way we look at the world and the way we think about success and and the way we run businesses, but you know, what are your thoughts for people on the importance of learning how to sell? Uh, how important is that to be a successful entrepreneur in your, in your view? Well, I think it's, it's critical. I think that you have to broaden your lens for what you mean when you say selling. 
because I think sometimes people have this very stereotypical, I'm in the sales group and I'm on the phone and I'm smiling and dialing and I'm making, by the way, which is part of building a business. Right. And it's, it's certainly part of what I learned how to do. Like I said, when I was in high school, I started selling office furniture to corporations. I was an 18-year-old kid selling office furniture in New York City. So I had plenty of plenty of people hanging up on me and slamming doors, physically slamming doors, because this was before you were before the security issues in big buildings. So you could go in and knock on every door yeah. in an office building and have them physically kick you out, as opposed to not let you in in the first place. Right. And so I've done that. But you know, I think uh, if you think about selling as the art of thinking through a value proposition and understanding a need and communicating how your value proposition can uh, satisfy someone's need, the applications are really quite broad, right? You start a company, you're selling yourself on the idea, you're selling your family that you should be crazy enough to go uh, go work 100 hours for little money. Um, you've got to get capital, so you're trying to raise capital, you're trying to get those first employees, you're trying to convince customers to take a chance on you. Right. And so you're in this perpetual uh, situation where you're selling something to someone, sometimes yourself, but but oftentimes others. Yeah, that broader definition of selling—it's really about changing someone's mind. You know, in the, in the at the at the at the highest level of abstraction, you're trying to move someone from point A to point B. Yeah, I, I think it's it's oftentimes changing someone's mind, but it's it's it that implies that at first they're they're a no, and you have to get them to a yes. Um, which is sometimes the case, I think more often it's, it's not an active no that you're selling against. It's just inertia, right? So th things just stay the way they are unless you figure out how to create the activation energy to move them and to get somebody to a new place. So, uh, yeah, I guess it, and it, whether it's going from a no to a yes or it's going from a I don't even care to I will pay attention, yeah. it is changing someone's mindset. When you reflect back on on what you learned how to do, um, you know, selling office furniture, you know, those early experiences, what did you take away from that? What did you learn about people or about yourself or about what it takes to sell successfully that that has been valuable to you, do you think? I think there's two things. I think part of it is temperamental or behavioral. So... Like this first experience I had selling office furniture was pretty brutal. So I was a commission-based salesman selling commercial office furniture, no salary, no draw, no real training, uh, no support, and um, in New York City as a 17, 18-year-old kid. And so um, as you might expect, you got, you got a lot of rejection. And so I spent the first couple of weeks learning about the furniture that we were representing, and then I literally took a bunch of brochures and I went three blocks from where my office was to the Empire State Building and literally canvassed every single, went from the bottom to the top floor, you knocked on every single office inside there, talking to the receptionist, saying, hey, we sell office furniture, can I talk to the person who handles it? And so most of the time you get kicked out. If they're nice, they politely take your brochure and say, I'll have someone give you a call, but you know that they're not gonna give you a call. Uh, and sometimes they're, you know, sometimes they're really aggressive in, in kicking you out. So I think you learn a lot about how to, or at least to try not to take rejection too personally. Yeah. Um, and to be able to handle a lot of no's. 
and to recognize the fact that just because a product may not be right for one customer, that doesn't mean there's not another customer out there who it is right for. So I think you learn a lot about how to handle that. And then I think you learn, if you're, if you're good, I think you learn a lot about the importance of asking instead of telling. So, you know, I, I suppose, oh boy, it'd be so interesting to have, you know, video or videos of those early sales meetings and what I looked like and how I said it. And I certainly had a Brooklyn accent. Um, but I, I suppose if you went back that uh, the vast majority of those early meetings were probably me talking and, and saying why we have all this great furniture and how we've got something for you and how our prices can't be beat or whatever other nonsense yeah, I was saying. Yeah. Uh, and, and I know over time, right, it became much more of a conversation where it was asking questions about, do you need furniture? Are you moving? Are you growing? Are you shrinking? What kind of office environment are you looking to create? Yeah. Is there an aesthetic that you're trying to figure out? Is there... And so... I think there's. I think I learned a lot both in terms of the behavioral part, but all and but also just the skill set of realizing that you know selling is a lot more listening than talking. Yeah, I think everybody starts, um, and it's because this is the commonly held view of sales that it's really just about talking fast and bullshitting someone and whatever. And they, they, I think your 1.0 experience is usually you're selling from the product forward as opposed to from the problem back. Uh, and where you learn like quickly if you're going to do it well, um, you really got to you got to try and understand what the customer's issue is first, and then sell against that. Right. right. And and I think that um, if you can bring the right temperament, meaning you're willing to put yourself out there, you're willing to take the risk of having someone say no, you're able to absorb the rejection and still come back and make the next call or be in the next meeting. If you can couple that with you're building the temperament of listening and and add some, I think as you get older and have a little bit more experience, you also have more things to draw upon to bring into the conversation. I think when you add that all together, you can be a successful salesperson. Yeah. Well, let's get back to your story. So what was your first job out of college and, and why? My first job out of college uh, was I was an associate consultant for a strategy consulting firm called Bain & Company. Right. And, Storied. And uh, I was there for six weeks because uh, shortly after I got there, they had a giant layoff and they let go of the vast majority of new people, myself very much included. So they were way ahead of their time in identifying who to get rid of. Right. Uh, they, right. they judged me. They, they sort of sized me up. I said, wow, these guys are good. <laughs> I wanted to work there even more after they, after they sized me up in six weeks. Um, so that, too, was a great learning experience. I, I would say two things about that. I, well, you asked why I went there. So I had, I had this office furniture experience, and I had started a, a, a college clothing company during Amherst, and I had a lot of sales and marketing and entrepreneurial experience, and I really felt like uh, as I was starting to think more about business and what I wanted to do with my career, I felt like I needed more strategy and finance and structure to balance a very sales and marketing external, just go out and sell it yeah. kind of disposition. And so, um, so that's why that's why I went to that job. Uh, obviously, I didn't I didn't last very long, uh, but I I would I tell you you know you learn something from every situation, good or bad, and that was a tough situation to get 
laid off six weeks. I'd moved to Boston. You know, if you grew up in Brooklyn, New York, Boston could be like, that's like Canada. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so my, my family was a little dismayed that I wasn't coming back to New York, You're leaving New York. Like, what the hell is wrong with you? But, um, but what, what, did, what did I figure out? I figured out is that you get back up. Like at first I thought it was horrible. I had a lease and I just moved to Boston. I had a roommate and I needed to get a new job and all this stuff. And what you figure out, you get through it. Right. And, and with every, um, when something goes bad, it opens up a different door, different door and a different opportunity set. And, uh, and frankly, it's, it's changed my view about risk and risk tolerance. So a lot of people view going to startups as this highly risky situation. And my experience has been that the risky situation is when you go to work in a company where you don't have a lot of control or ability to affect the outcome. That's risky. Yeah. Because then somebody in the big office upstairs can make a decision who doesn't even know you, doesn't even know your name. In my case, they probably knew my name and had a detailed file on me. <laughs> but uh, they don't even know your, know your name. Uh, and through no fault of your own, you're, you're out of luck. That's risky. Yeah. So I think um, it has definitely changed my perception of risk. I don't view the going to the big, stable, safe company as all that safe. And I don't view starting a new company as all that risky. Yeah. I've always held that view. Um, we both have a sort of passing interest in Buddhism, more Buddhist thinking. I just read a book uh, called The Obstacle is the Way. Have you, have you come across that? I have that? not, no. Um, uh, definitely worth checking out. Um, uh, we both read Why Buddhism is True and enjoyed that one. Uh, this is more, it comes at it from a more sort of uh, view of the Stoicists. Um, but this idea that, that uh, the things that are, are, are obstacles can be enablers if you, if you change the way you view them. And, and in a way, this sort of mindset of deriving, finding the thing of value in all of the things that happen to you that are outside of your own control and then finding a platform to move forward on, I think is, um, I think it's a, it's a, it's a life skill that's common to successful people. That it's, it's not that from the outside, it looks like, oh, well, this has been a charmed life and it's been just boom, boom, boom. Uh, but it's, it's never a straight line, as they say. And, uh, oh, gosh. And, uh, no. I, I would say, you know, like every company that I have ever been a part of running or starting at one point was at death's door and probably could have and should have gone out of business. And we managed to figure something out just in time. And they've all ended up relatively successful, some more so than others, but all kind of in the in the success box. And, you know, there's a little bit of luck in there, obviously, and some of it comes from hard work and just getting more swings at the bat. Uh, but a lot of it is just attitude of saying, okay, well, we're not going to go down without a fight. And, I think that's right. And I think we're going we're gonna to turn every, every negative situation into a positive. You go down, you have a customer meeting, and the customer tells you your product is horrible and there's no way they would ever consider uh, purchasing your product. And... You know, you could go back dejected, which you kind of do, uh, but you additionally need to go back and saying, okay, there's something wrong with my product here, and I need to either need to figure out uh, the customers that will like my product, or I need to go figure out how to change my product to actually have a value proposition to these customers that I thought I was serving. And so you got to take every negative and turn it into a positive. Let's, um, let's talk a little bit about the startup journey. Um, you've been involved in a lot of cool companies. I think the first 
Um, it wasn't called Zuva, right? It was, I think the company was called something else in the beginning, right? Yeah, so the, the, the first venture capital-backed company that I started and ran, co-started, uh, legally, the legal name was Transactive Solutions. Uh, sexy. It was a very sexy name. Um, it was, <clears throat> we built a consumer brand that was called Zuba. And Zuba, you know, had a little more sex appeal. A little to more it. zip. Yeah, we figured anything with two O's was destined for, for glory. You, know, you had Google, you had Yahoo. That's good. It was that yeah. was we were like, okay, Zuba. It's a leading indicator. Uh, yeah. So the I'm trying to think of what might be interesting uh, on that story. Uh, what was Zuba? What did it do? So what Zuba was was a uh, the idea around Zuba was this is back in kind of late '90s. The internet is booming. People are spending absurd amounts of money trying to drive traffic to their website. Spending you know her ungodly sums of capital trying to build their brand. And we said, boy, this is interesting. There's so much brand level advertising and marketing out there, but there's very little SKU level, product level marketing. And so the original idea, and my partner, um, my partner had been the COO of IDG France. So he was a real content guy. And I had been the COO of a small financial services company that had been acquired by Travelers, and then when Travelers and Citibank merged, became part of Citigroup, and we were real direct marketing guys. So we, in the pre-internet, you know, through internet growing, so, but, but you know, if you're in the direct marketing space before the internet, the cost of being wrong is really expensive. When you're right. sending out direct mail, you know, the, the per piece costs and the shipping costs, postage, and all of the data and management, it was really expensive, so you had to be good if you were gonna have a business. So my, my training had been kind of on that direct marketing side, and he was a, a content guy. And so we started working on a business that brought those two elements together. And so the idea was that we built these channels of content that a consumer could subscribe to. The content was really high quality, which was differentiated back at that time. Um, and it was bite-sized content of 250 words or less with a real magazine publisher's uh, perspective on it, the IDG kind of kind of brand in there, um, and we were using the content to try to understand what consumers were interested in, and we built a dynamic composition engine that was data driven based on your profile and your preferences and your behavior that would dynamically generate merchandising SKU level products that were contextually relevant to the content that you were subscribing to, and the content that you got was based on how you how the previous content that we had sent you performed. Did you open the email? Did you interact with the email? Did you forward it to a friend? How did you rate that content? And the engine itself that created all this was a dynamic email composition engine so that each individual email that went out was dynamically and uniquely created for you based on your profile and your preferences. Hmm. So back in 1999 that was pretty novel. Yeah, that was a that was a cool idea. Um, we originally were building that company as a technology business. So we built this dynamic engine. We built this personalization capability. We built um, this uh, distributed content management system, which back then there were no distributed content management systems. So we could have hundreds of freelance writers that were writing in areas of their expertise, submit their content, and have our internal editorial team do this at scale. So we built a lot of technology, which is why we were called Transactive Solutions. And the first instance, the first customer of Transactive Solutions was us building this to kind of test it out was Zuba. 
And then Zuba took off, and Zuba went from zero to six and a half million subscriptions in under six months. So instantly, we had six and a half million subscriptions, and we had incredible direct marketing metrics, and it was 1999-2000, and uh, we were fortunate to be acquired by Bertelsmann. You know, this um, phenomenon where you, you start a business in the direction of True North, and you end up finding something more interesting at 30 or 30 degrees east or west of wherever you set out is another common theme in your life experience. Um, you know, h- how do you know um, if I'm running a business and I'm, you know, because it, it takes a certain amount of conviction to make anything happen. We've already discussed that. Um, so everything is hard, right? But how do you know when it's time to move the bow of the ship in a different direction than the one that you set out to, uh, you know, to accomplish? That's a great question. And as you know, well, certainly all of my companies have have moved at least 30 degrees from where they started, in some cases more. Um, and you have this real challenge of, do I need to show fortitude and persistence and stick with it and grind it out? Because it's hard building a company and you can't have the strategy du jour. And, uh, and so how do you know when you've given it enough runway uh, that it's just a, I, I like it, I, I net it down to, is it a failure of strategy or a failure of execution? And um, so sometimes it's easier than not because sometimes what you can do is you can look at competitors. So if your competitors are all doing really well and you're not, then I think you've got a failure of execution, right? The market's there. Customers are buying. They're just not buying your stuff. So my product isn't right, or my sales approach isn't right, or my go-to-market strategy isn't right. Something is not right inside, and so you need to look internally. I think that, um, you know, alternatively, so I, 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 I helped start a, a mobile marketing technology company that I think you know a little bit about, Mike. Um, and in that business, our competitors were all doing horribly. Right, we were all trying to enable mobile marketing back in the early 2000s, and cell phones weren't really there, and data communications weren't there, and consumer adoption wasn't there, and brands didn't want to risk their brands on a new medium until it was proven. And so as a result of all these factors, you know, we and most of our competitors were really hurting. Nobody had a lot of revenue going. So for me in that situation, it was a little bit easier, still not easy, and there was still plenty of you know, discussion and dissension around it, but it was a little bit easier in that sense to say, okay, um, the market's not here now. Are we seeing enough signs that it's going to get here shortly, at least within the amount of cash that we have left in the bank? And if the answer to that's no, then you better move quickly. Um, and so that's a good example of where we, you know, we changed the business 30 or 45 degrees, and we went from several years of eating bugs and grasshoppers to being one of the fastest growing companies in the U.S. We'll be right back. How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G20 Ventures, people first. You know, I think one of the other things that makes you unique is, is you have... Um, I think, a knack for building teams that scale um, and for drawing in people around you who are competent, who people that can execute. I think, you know, in the M-Cube days, I think, um, 
I think it was like eight of us had been a CEO, like in that company, yeah. um, which is, which is a blessing and a curse. Um, how do you think about what it takes to build a team that scale scales? And then, and then, you know, what, ad, what advice do you have? I mean, like, I, I think it's the most natural thing in the world to want to want to bring people into work for you who, who aren't sort of, you know, who, who you can manage. Right. But, but, it, but it seems like that, that leads to in, in organizations that have inferior performance because they don't have folks who can execute at the next level. You've, you've really, I think, again, you, you've done a remarkable job avoiding that mistake. What, what does it take to, to sort of keep the eagles flying in formation, to use a, a quote from those days? Yeah, well, you're, you're nice to pay me the compliment. I'm not sure I deserve all of that. But, um, I, look, I think it starts with... It's, it starts with a philosophy that says you can't be an A-plus company unless you have an A-plus senior team. And uh, and you can't have an A-plus senior team if there's a couple of Cs on the squad. Maybe I should say an A-team. So you can have a couple of A-pluses that might offset a, a B-plus or an A-minus yeah. and, still, and still be really good. But you, you have to, you just can't. You can't be a great company unless you have a great team. And so it starts by recognizing that and saying I ha- you have to be committed to, to doing that. Um, I think that if you want to have great people work with you, then you have to recognize the fact that in many or maybe most situations, <laughs> maybe all situations in my case, they're going to be better than you. They're going to be better than you at, at almost everything they do. They should be better than you. And I don't think you should be embarrassed by that. I don't think you should feel threatened by that. I think you should just love that. And I don't think you should be afraid to tell them that. And I don't think you should be afraid as a CEO to recognize the fact that if you're hiring the right people and building the right team that you're learning every bit as much from them as maybe they're learning from you. And so if you can, and I think that's, maybe that's, that was never, that's never hard for me. I really honestly, maybe it's because I'm not that smart, but I, I'm used to being in a position where the people around me are better at what they do than I could be at what they do. You know, it's um, I'm reminded of uh, Mike Nichols, the great director. He he often said that um, you know 80 percent of of directing a film is casting it. That if you make good casting choices, uh, you know, on balance, the film is going to come out okay. And and that articulate, you know, the way you explain it, it sounds almost like it's a hiring discipline and a way of thinking about how you build the team as opposed to how you manage it after the fact. Is that right? I think it's both. I think it's certainly keeping a high bar for for who you hire. And and by the way, then all of a sudden, if you could start to get it right in the beginning, it becomes a little self-fulfilling and virtuous because then other great people say, wow, look at all these great people. Yeah. I'll, I'll go work with Mike Triano. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. And so... Um, so it feeds on itself. So it gets easier over time, right? It's harder to get the first great person to come work with you. Uh, but the sixth one, after there's, other, there's five yeah. other you know, amazing people in the company, the sixth one becomes less hard. This is, this is another thing that I've t- taken from you over the years. But uh, one of the things that we t- talked about early in the days uh, at MCube was we don't want to hire anyone we're not really excited about. 
Like that, it was a threshold of let's not hire someone because we need someone in this role. It's just going to jack up the burn rate and it's going to dilute the talent pool. Like the threshold in the early days in particular is I really want this person to be part of our company. And it's hard to maintain that discipline when, when shit's breaking, but, but I think it's an it's, it's important part of this philosophy. It's I hard. I remember uh, taking some heat because I think we were, gosh, I think we were approaching 100 people. And until that point, I was still trying to be part of the recruiting process for every new hire, which you know by the time you know when you're uh, when you were 80 going to 100, we have 20 new hires, and I'm and yeah. now you've got this pain in the butt CEO saying he wants to be part of the hiring process, and I want to be the last interviewer. Um, but it was really about that. It was really about saying, look, I, I want to be. If everyone else is sold on this candidate, then. It's unlikely I'm going to exercise any presidential veto, but I want to be part of that to be kind of this last line of, is this person a great cultural fit? And also, like, look, that person has now met a whole bunch of people and we're close to giving them an offer. Let me have the opportunity to help talk about from the CEO perspective what we're building and why it matters and, and why somebody might want to join the team so I could do some, some selling as well as buying. But yeah, it, it, takes, uh, it takes a big commitment. I remember even back in that company, as we got really big and had 150, 200 people, and we really were spending a lot of time upgrading and professionalizing and putting process in around our HR function, and we hired a pro, a woman named Mary Murphy, who was, who was awesome, uh, to be our head of HR. And I remember, um, and she reported to me, and I remember at one, I had a board conversation, and one of our board members said, well, you, have, you already have all these direct reports. You know, why don't you have, why don't you just have her report to your CFO? And I said, because HR is not a finance function. Like, culture is the most important thing I can do uh, and, and help build and cultivate here. And so don't, don't view HR as an admin function, view it as a strategic function. That's, you know, that's the most important thing we can do to create a self-sustaining business. I want to um, save time for, uh, for HomeTap. So, you know, flash forward, you did some time on the, uh, on the dark side, right? Uh, as an investor back at Bain. Did a few tours uh, of duty they there. Took you, they took you wonderful, back. Wonderful place. Um, yep. You were dabbling in a bunch of things. I think at one point we had lunch and you were working on six or seven different things. Um, uh, what is HomeTap, and why was it, you know, worthy of 100% of your professional attention, um, you know, right now? Yeah, so I did did do a couple of tours of duty at Bank Capital, which was really awesome, and I learned a ton uh, and had some fun and got to see some great companies being built. Uh, I left because I was feeling I just wanted to be more on the operating side. Uh, so I actually partially left Bain Capital initially to to run one of our portfolio companies. Um, oh, Skyhook. It was Skyhook Wireless, which was a great, really interesting mobile location technology company. It was acquired a few years ago by Liberty Media. And then following that, uh, I was trying to figure out what to do next. And, you know, I'm sort of part investor and I'm probably, you know, I'm part investor and part operator. And I thought what I would do is kind of thread the needle by helping to start a small number of companies but not run any of them. I thought, uh, you know, I've, I've run quite a few companies and had some successes and, 
and maybe it was time to kind of play more of a hands-on executive chairman kind of role and 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 let the the next wave of talent uh, run some businesses. And so we worked on a few ideas and had a lot of ideas kicking around um, and got hit by HomeTap. And, and really, two things happened within a very short period of time. Uh, the first is one of our co-founders, um, a young guy who's a Harvard grad, um, he was talking about how none of his peers can really afford to buy a place here in Boston. That they all have good jobs, good income, they could afford to have a mortgage, but they just didn't have the capital to be able to put down who you know, 20% on, on a, even a small condo or apartment here in Boston, anywhere close to where they lived. Right. So he was kind of talking about that, and, um, and he knew a little bit about the real estate space, and uh, he was kicking, kicking some stuff around. He, he, I had gotten to know him because he was, had started another company that I was trying to help him out a little bit on. And then the second thing that happened, almost as a sign, is a, a buddy of mine who's more of my contemporary, uh, married, has a couple of kids that were um, in middle and high school, lived in Newton, um, wife lost her job, and won't get into all the details, but it put them into a spin, which resulted in them having to relocate into a much smaller house outside of Newton because they just... Um, for financial reasons. The kids had to move schools and it was a total, total train wreck. And the thing that, that struck me was the fact that they had been living in this house for 15 plus years and had built up a massive amount of equity, but they couldn't borrow against it because they had no current income because the wife, the wife in the, was the major breadwinner here. And so she, they couldn't borrow and they couldn't tap into the equity um, other than to sell the house. Yeah. So they sold the house and they bought a smaller, less expensive house. and wound up having a lot of capital as a result, but they had to disrupt their entire lives in order to get access to that capital. So I was thinking about that, and, and I'm a pretty conservative, personally, I'm pretty conservative financially. So uh, you know, I've been paying down my mortgage and have not tried to refinance it because I like having a small mortgage and just like having as little debt as possible, even though I could refinance it and take cash out and probably invest that money at a much better rate than what the after-tax cost of a mortgage is. So I never liked having a lot of debt on my personal balance sheet. I, as soon as I could pay off my college loans, I paid off my college loans. And I just that's just sort of the neurotic way that I've lived my life, was just to just try to be as conservative on my own personal balance sheet as possible. And so I was thinking about that. I was thinking about you've got young people who can't afford to buy houses. You've got people with families that have all this equity from the housing price appreciation that's occurred, but they can't actually touch it or live off of it until they sell their house. And so, and meanwhile, they've got needs along the way. Um, and I was thinking about even just going back to, you asked me about my early days in Brooklyn. So we lived in a two bedroom rent control department. We didn't have a lot of money, but we didn't have a lot of costs. So even though my dad didn't make a ton uh, and my mom, you know, she didn't work most of the time when I and my sister were growing up. Uh, we were okay. Like, we weren't great, but we were okay because they didn't have this big mortgage. They didn't have this monthly monthly uh, beating drum. And yet the friends of mine whose parents owned houses, who were probably in better, on paper, financial shape than us, like, there was a lot of... There was actually more stress in their household yeah. around money. So all this, all this sort of started to resonate around this concept of 
how so many homeowners are, are house rich and cash poor. And if you look at the data, right, that was the, the emotional side, which is like, why should it be that um, homeowners can, the only option is to borrow and put yourself in debt and to have that stress and you can't get out of it. And the only way to get out of it is, to, is this binary decision of sell it or you sell all of it or nothing. I was even thinking like as a business operator and entrepreneur, there's all these flavors of equity. There's seed capital and venture capital and private equity and venture debt and you can borrow from banks and different kinds of banks and different terms and commercial loans and lines of credit. Like all this stuff exists for operators and business people. But for homeowners, it's like, you know, you can, you can have any, uh, you know, you can pick any color you want as long as it's black. Yeah. So, um, or I guess in the case of, of it's, unless it's red, because it's debt. And so, um, so all that started to, to percolate. And then you start to look at the data, right? That's the emotional, experiential side of this for me. Then you start to look at the data and you look at how much home prices have risen over the, you know, in particular, the last decade, you know, since the 07, 08, you know, 09 crash. But even historically, you go back 50 years, home prices have appreciated you know, north of 5% a year across the nation. That's on average. Um, and you look at wages, and wages are growing really slowly. So you've got wage growth really hampered. You've got prices that are going higher and higher. And so what that means is, is that homeowners are spending a greater and greater percentage of their after-tax income on housing expenses. And it means that while on paper, if they were lucky enough to have bought a home, you know, they're on paper, they look good, but in practice, they're under increased strain because the cost of that borrowing is high and their wages aren't growing to keep pace with it. So analytically, we kind of came to the same conclusion that we got experimentally, which is that homeowners need a break. And so we we're building this business called HomeTab and the mission of this business is to make home ownership less stressful and more accessible. For those who don't know, HomeTap was actually my first investment. Very happy to do it uh, uh, just a few months ago. And, and you know, I, I love this duality of it, that there's this, this analytical foundation. I look at it in, in the, almost the opposite terms, but, but with the same dichotomy, that you have this foundation of these incredible market trends that suggest a massive marketplace, like very venture-friendly kind of investment, you're essentially creating a whole new capital class, right? Um, and it has that kind of potential in terms of scalability. But there is this very strong emotional component of of just liberating people from the tyranny of their own household debt, you know? Absolutely. Um, and it, it really affects your life. I mean, it, it really does. And even among people who are, quote-unquote, very successful, uh, this notion of being, you know, house rich and cash poor is is a phenomenon. I think at every level of of society, completely. And so you had asked the question of what what got me back. Why did I lace up my shoes and get back on the on the field to go build another company? It really is this emotional part, which is, you know, I've been fortunate. I've built a bunch of companies. They've they've all done relatively well, but this one really has me excited at an emotional level, which is if we do our jobs right, a decade from now, you know, this idea of being able to bring an investor into your house, of being able to have an equity partner as opposed to a debt partner, a, a partner who, who's sort of working or an investor who's working alongside you, who, who basically gets paid off of the final value of the home as opposed to getting paid interest and principal regardless of what happens to the house. So that alignment side of it really uh, appeals to me. 
but but I guess most importantly is like if you if you break it down to the the real use cases, like you're totally right. It, this is not this is broad. It's it's from from lower lower middle class folks who are lucky enough to be able to own a home to upper middle class or even some wealthy folks who own homes find themselves in different in different flavors of the same problem, which is you've got this house, you're paying a huge percentage of your monthly after-tax income on maintaining this mortgage and keeping up the house, and then life happens. Your kids want to go to college or a family member, family member has a health issue or somebody loses a job or you want to start a new company. You want to start your own little business and you need some capital to do it. So there's all these life needs. I, I break them up into two buckets, the kind of um, the challenges of life and the opportunities of life. So whether it's health issue or a house emergency or a family matter issue or opportunities, a kid's education or buy a second property or start a new business, um, whatever it may be, you know, those needs are, um, they go unfulfilled today while meanwhile homeowners are sitting on you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, I think the average homeowner, we just did a study, the average homeowner is sitting on $127,000 worth of equity in their house. And so you've got $127,000 of equity in your house that's appreciating, and meanwhile you have a family member who's ill and you can't help them. Like, that's wrong. Um, and so the idea of helping people free up that equity to be able to improve their lives and, and spend that the way they need to or the way they want to, I think is really rewarding. All right, really enjoyed that. Um, it's um, we're all in this business to make money. Uh, that's the reality. Um, it's a real pleasure uh, to be able to work on something that I think can also affect the quality of people's lives. Uh, the sort of human dimension of this company um, is is part of what makes it so exciting for me. I uh, can't think of a better person to be running it uh, than Jeff Glass. And um, anyway, I hope you enjoyed our time together as much as I did. Um, All right. Thanks for sticking around to the end here. And uh, we will see you on the next episode of How Hard Can It Be? Take care.